2: Good morning. Thank you for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Spending your Saturday morning with us, Maria Shaleos, Tom Bettis, Michael Karen, with you this morning. Taking your calls and questions, 801-575-8255. Phone lines are open. You can also text us your questions, five seven five zero zero. Dean wanted to know, he didn't call us back, but his question was, how high will grapes grow on pine trees? I'm not sure why he wants to know this. But help us out here. How so, high will they grow?
3: So they, they'll go all the way to the top and eventually smother the plant. And that's uh, – grapes as a, as a life strategy, they, they're smotherers. So they tend to climb on other things. That, that's why they grow so fast is because they don't put a lot of energy into producing structural wood. They use other things to help them out. So other plants typically. Mm-hmm. So, so – and they leaf out later than almost everything else. So after everything else is leafed out, if they're up in a tree, it leafs out, and then the grapes leaf out on top of that, and so they're out in the sunlight first. And so they can smother plants out completely over time. So I wouldn't recommend letting it stay in the tree too long or getting too far up there. You won't be able to remove it, and it could potentially cause problems for the other tree later on.
2: Uh, His other question was, do grapes grow better in Utah weather? Better uh, than California. Better than not I'm not sure what they're talking about. Yeah,
3: yeah. I, I think I understand the basis of the question, and that might mean say you know because we say in certain regions of the world that, that climate makes really good climate for certain flavors of wine or certain flavors of juice or table grapes or whatever because of that nuance that that climate pr- provides. Uh, grapes do well here. We have a lot of sunlight. Uh, like I said, there is a there is a, a growing wine industry in Southern Utah. That is kind of capitalizing on the uniqueness that Utah's climate brings with high elevation, high light intensities, and different soils than there are, say, in California. Mm -hmm. So what I would say is that we have our own unique flavors and nuances that comes to the fruit based on our climate and our soils.
2: Uh, Next listener says they heard us talking about uh, waiting to prune grapevines. They want to know when's the best time to prune roses, John.
1: Mid-March. So the grapes we wait on because of their susceptibility to frost, but roses along the Wasatch Front need to be pruned in mid-March in the Mountain Valleys, the first of April.
2: Okay. Next listener says they are wondering about winter squash varieties. Uh, this past year, they grew, is that kasha, kasha squash? Probably. Okay. And they were might good be and Crenshaw? large. Crenshaw? No, Crenshaw's, no a Crenshaw's a melon. Yeah. yeah. But they didn't get very many, and this year they're thinking about uh, uh, growing Georgia candy roasters. Do you have any suggestions to make that work for them?
1: I would rotate where they put the mel- the squash and just make sure that you, know, you don't grow those in the same spot more than one out of three years. And last year, I think our production in our gardens was just diminished because of the heat. You know, it's when you have a July that you have like 18 out of the 30 days above 100 and then another stint in September at 105, that's not really productive as for growing vegetables. And so I'm wondering if that might be some of the reason. But the other thing I see is when people grow less common varieties of vegetables and even fruits, sometimes a crapshoot because – you know, maybe we're growing one, then this is Georgia candy roaster. Well, maybe it does great in the southeast, but we don't know if it does well in Utah. And so a lot of times you know, we are growing the Hubbard squash and the acorns and all these because they have a track record. And if you're wanting to try some of these newer unique ones, they should do fine. But until you grow them for a few years, you just don't know.
2: So the second part of their question was, or would they be better off just doing a Hubbard squash? It
1: depends on if they want to gamble just a little bit. Oftentimes these newer, you know, right now there's a trend in the market as far as winter squash for growing little personal serving size winter squash. You'll get more of them per plant. And so a lot of times they do fine, but it's just something, if you want to be safe, grow the Hubbards. But if you want to experiment a little bit, I'd give it an 80% chance that if they're winter squash, they'll be fine.
2: Okay. Next listener wants to know if you would recommend a good white sweet potato.
1: White, huh? The only ones that I have grown actually are the kind of orangey yellow flesh. And so there's one that Johnny sells called Mirasaki that looks like a Japanese variety. And if Johnny's is selling it, it's probably going to be a reliable variety. It ripens in about 105 days. So the Wasatch Front, it would be fine. But a white one, just looking at varieties, probably this Mirasaki would be one just because Johnny's carries it that has a pretty good track record.
2: Okay, uh, let's go back to our phone lines. Leroy's and Murray, good morning, and what is your question?
4: Good morning. Thanks for receiving my call. I uh, am an impatient person, and I have a lot of grapes. We juice them, but uh, I also have made them into raisins. And my method is I take them off the vine, put them in my dehydrator, set it about 135 degrees and in three or four days i have raisins is there anything wrong with that or have you heard of that before
3: no in fact we were going to mention something about dehydrating and making raisins that way uh, a little bit uh, like right about now in the show anyway so that's good so it okay. works good it, um for for my approach i actually had a uh, I had about 120 pounds of grapes, and so that was more than I wanted to try and put into my dehydrator. So I did the, this greenhouse method, and it worked good for me, and it didn't take yeah. any energy. So, but absolutely, there's nothing wrong with that. It is a fast way to get them. So, yeah, that's great. It does work, good.
4: and it doesn't uh, uh, reduce any of the vitamins or minerals that, uh, that are in the grapes.
3: Well, that that's a little bit. Out of my wheelhouse, uh, there there is some evidence that that cooking foods because it, it is basically a mild form of cooking, especially when you're going to up to the 135. Uh, there's a there is a pretty good chance that there probably are some of the phytochemicals that are are reduced. The phytonutrients are reduced, but I'm I'm probably not the best one to talk about that. Well, I,
1: there's probably I know that when what I've heard, and this is me pretending to be a nutritionist, and I'm not. Um. <laughs> When you cook a vegetable, you lose about half the nutrients in it from the cooking yeah. process, and so you're probably losing some, but you're, those are still going to be packed with nutrients and other good things. Oh yeah,
3: there's still there's still lots of good there, and and you need to preserve them. So if it comes down to hey, I can do this and preserve them and have what's what's left of the goodness, you know, all all winter long, that's that's a win compared to just not having them at all. I, I think I think go for it.
4: If I were to reduce the temperature to say 120, uh, would that make a difference?
3: Um, it might make a difference. Yeah,
1: it's, yep. it's you're delving into areas. We're horticulturists and gardeners. <laughs> Not food preservation. Our nutritionist
3: colleagues are probably rolling their eyes if they're listening to this. But you're still getting a lot of nutrition. You're still getting a lot of nutrition out of it. And And
1: if you are cooking it at 135 and it's working, I would just stick with
3: Yeah, it it will increase the dry time to lower the temperatures to say 125. It might increase the dry time by six or eight hours.
4: Yeah. Uh, Okay. Well, I appreciate I listen to you all the time and you sure give out a lot of important and helpful information. Keep up the good work. Great. Merry Merry Christmas.
2: Merry Christmas. Thanks so much for calling in this morning. Number to call with your questions, 801-575-8255. You can text us at five seven five zero zero. Our special extended pregame coverage of the New Mexico Bowl starts at noon. It's sponsored by Andy's Neighborhood Market in Kearns.
0: A gun in the face. Then all of a sudden, they all kind of lined up. They pointed their guns at me.
1: And this is the point where I thought,
3: Good morning. Thanks
2: for joining us for the KSL Greenhouse. Maria Tan and Mike with you this morning. We're talking about sweet potatoes. People can hear us talking over the music there. Sometimes we forget
1: we're doing a show because we get so involved in our conversation.
2: But Mike, you were saying that you actually have eaten the sweet potatoes from an ornamental sweet potato vine, which so many people plant in their planters and they don't even think twice about Eating the potatoes,
3: yeah, and that was just it. I I've grown them ornamentally a number of years in just containers, and th- this particular year was a hanging basket, and and the tuber got so big that it just split the pot. Wow! And so I thought it's this huge sweet potato in there. Why not? So I, I went. We actually made fries out of it. It was fine. Um, it's not as sweet as the commercially available varieties that mm-hmm. are you know bred for that, but it was edible and and it was I'm not decent. sure
2: fine is what something uh, I'm going to eat though. Yeah. Come on, really? Yeah. I've heard fine? that
1: some of yeah, them... It's fine.
3: Like okay. you don't grow up for that, right? It was For just, sure. I just thought I'd try it. I
1: think it's yeah. fine. Yeah. I've heard that some people have cooked them up and they've tasted maybe a bit bitter or a bit soapy. Yeah, And it must just be variety dependent even on the ornamental yeah, stuff.
3: I think so.
2: We don't have a lot of callers this morning. So I wanted to go back to a topic we were talking about earlier, and that was greenhouses. Um, greenhouses, I mean... I they're kind of a dream for me. They're kind of this fantasy thing, but probably aren't very practical. Talk about when a greenhouse is practical. And I think, like I said, it's kind of a fantasy for me, but they are a lot of work. You still have to take care of them.
3: Yeah. So they can be kind of a babysitting job, as I mentioned earlier. I think practical, that's a, that's a tough one because it's what's important to you. You know, I, I have people that that having that greenhouse or some time in a space like that is is super important. So they're they're willing to say, well, I don't want to travel, or I don't want to do other things. I'm going to put a bunch of my money into this greenhouse because that's the space that I like. That brings me joy. It gives me that therapy that I need. And so they're willing to spend that. And so it's hard to say, well, that's practical or it's not practical. It's just what, whatever is just that important to you. But what, when I've taught um, like home greenhouse classes before, um. What ends up happening is most of the students in the class, when I talk to them after the class, actually say that I've talked them out of a traditional greenhouse, which is typically fairly energy consumptive, especially with natural gas if you're going to heat it in the winter. And they they instead choose more of a season extension structure that doesn't have so many uh, energy inputs that it needs. Uh, So they kind of realize that the idea of growing a tomato year-round it becomes a pretty expensive endeavor with probably supplemental light and and heat to keep the greenhouse warm, especially at night. Um, When I, when I worked in the hydroponic, you know, tomato greenhouse industry in New Mexico years ago, we, we would talk about tomatoes being made of natural gas because it costs so much to heat the greenhouses in the winter to keep, you know, we want those daytime temperatures to be in the eighties. And so uh, the typical greenhouse covering doesn't doesn't support those kind of temperatures um, especially at night because a covering the trade-off with a covering that lets a lot of light in tends to let a lot of heat out and so that has to be made up to keep those plants happy so it becomes less practical in those sense but again what how are you justifying you know what what you want
2: well and plus you have to be realistic about what you can grow in the greenhouse and and the cost yeah. involved.
3: Yeah, the co- the crops you choose influence a lot of the inputs and things that you're going to have to
2: have. You told me for one of my areas that I don't get a lot of sunlight, well, I could grow more tropical things if I wanted. That might make me happy.
3: Yeah, tomatoes might not be good there, but well, you could probably you know, grow a lot of nice indoor plants and maybe even some of the flower flowering plants that don't need as much light, like begonias and impatiens and things like that, would do just lovely there.
2: Right, but it's something like we talked about, It's about research. Do your research before you actually get involved in such an expensive kind of project. As
1: I see people, they'll ask me, well, I want to grow tomatoes all winter long and the cost of the greenhouse and the cost to heat it, pest control and everything else. You may as well fly to Mexico (laughs) in January, go to Mazatlan and just get some Uh. fresh tomatoes and eat them because you'll have a better time. You're not roped to a greenhouse and it may be cheaper for a vacation for two
3: but I will just leave it with this that, you know, if that's your passion and, and that's really where you wanna spend your time and your energy and that that brings you a lot of joy, then I would say I would say go for it. Don't let don't let somebody like me talk you out of say, I really want to do this. Because there's ways to make it work. It's just I think the main line here is what what you said, Maria, is do some research understand what you're getting into because i do talk to a lot of people that have put in greenhouses and i see a lot of hobby greenhouses in backyards that get used for the first two or three years and then they get abandoned because they don't realize that they're going to be 150 degrees in the summer if they forget to go and put the vents open the vents and even if they do open the vents it's still going to be really hot in there and and then in the winter how are they going to compensate for that that cold temperature a lot of people say well it it's a greenhouse. The sun's going to warm it up. I don't need to put heat in there. Well, that that's fine during the day, but what happens when we have a 15-degree night? Um, it's going to be real close to 15 degrees in that greenhouse, too. Do it with your eyes open. Exactly.
2: Right. Okay. Vaughn is on the line in West Jordan. Good morning, Vaughn. What is your question?
4: So, I finally got our front lawn looking nice <laughs> uh, this year, and I noticed in the uh, fall before the snow hit, we, I'm getting just a slight red haze across the top of the grass. Is there anything I need to worry about?
1: Well, you're getting a red haze now, or was it last fall?
4: Well, it was probably a month ago.
1: That could be the grass going dormant and drawing nutrients back down into the roots. Uh, if it were earlier, I was going to say maybe a rust disease, but those are not common or not out during the winter. I. Do you have any thoughts?
3: The only thing I can think of is it turning it turning uh, maybe m- more of a purple cast than than as much red, um, which tends to indicate dormancy. It's usually more associated with, like, phosphorus deficiencies and things like that, which is totally normal to see when the lawns are going dormant. So at this point, I wouldn't say there's cause for alarm. Uh, look at it in the spring when things start to green up. And my guess is that everything will will be just fine. Um, Unless, like Tom said, it's a rust fungus, which is usually very bright red and will stain your shoes. And and we'll start seeing those in August typically.
4: Okay, thank you.
2: All right, Vaughn, thanks for your call this morning. Let's stay with our phone lines while we have just a few minutes left in the show. Uh, David is in Salt Lake City. Good morning, David.
4: Good morning. What was your question? Um, Well, I use all my grass clippings in my garden for mulch. And I want to know if I can use weed and feed fertilizer on the grass and not damage anything that's in
1: the garden. You would need to look at the label and see what the weight is like because you could do a lot of damage to your garden by putting that weed and feed down and then cutting and putting it in there. And so you would want to look at the label, but there may be up to a month wait before you... Put those clippings into your garden because depending on what the weed and feed has in there, the dicamba, if it's cooler, you know, and that soil is at 50, 55 degrees, that dicamba can stay, stay active for several okay. weeks. And so you do need to be super careful. Okay,
4: so I'm best not to use it at all. Yeah, not or just those,
3: compost those yeah. clippings separately and then add them. To the garden, you know, after they're they're broken down substantially. Yeah, and
1: you need to make sure that they get above 140 degrees for several days if okay. you compost them. You can compost them right back onto your lawn with a composting mower or you right. can throw them away. Okay. Yeah. That's
4: what I needed to know.
2: All right. Thank you. Thanks so much for your call this morning. Our next listener says they got tulip bulbs from Holland, but they're waiting for a fence to be fixed before they plant them because the deer will eat them. Um, and they want to know what's the best way to store them in the meantime.
3: There, there's no best way to store them. They're, they're probably not going to be alive in the spring. They usually just dry out over the winter. Um, to, to keep them from drying out, the best practice is really just to put them in in sawdust-layered Uh, layers of sawdust that is slightly moist in the garage in the garage
2: what if they just plant them in a pot
3: yeah that that's that's my recommendation is put them in a pot force them indoors enjoy the flowers you know after the in in the depths of winter sometime in probably if you force them now they'll probably be blooming sometime in february enjoy them but you're probably not going to get any anything out of them by planting them um
2: and then after they bloom they could still plant them outside Next spring, maybe? No, generally
3: not. If they want to put them outside, uh, because because the energy that makes the flower comes from the bulb, the bulbs shrivel to almost nothing when they flower. And unless you leave the leaves on until they wither on their own, usually a, a few months later, they don't refill the new bulb for next year unless you do that. And so you'd have to be willing then to take them from indoors, which... Um, If they flower in February, even early March, going from indoors to outdoors, even then, they're probably just going to get killed by the cold, which I know a lot of people don't think, well, hey, tulips are hardy. Not when they're adjusted to being in a 70-degree house, putting them outside at a 25-degree night. They're probably just going to straight out die.
2: They can't just stick them in the fridge? Well, if they were to store them
1: in the fridge, they would need to put them in a big Tupperware container with some barely moist sawdust or potting soil it's the same method you're just putting them in the fridge and you could keep an eye on them and when they start to shoot some roots you're going to need to plant them and so it's difficult to get them to just plant in your yard but they would just have to leave them alone intact like mike said to see if they could get them far enough along to reap yeah
3: at this point even putting them in the fridge they're probably going to grow enough that that they'll be way past any hope of putting them outside in the yard to make them
2: actually So when you eat say force them though wouldn't that mean put putting them in the fridge or
3: Yeah forcing is just the artificial process of getting them to flower say indoors and they usually have to go into a fridge or experience a, a cold treatment it's usually 8 to 12 weeks of uh, temperatures um usually around 40 degrees to get the flower buds to be initiated. So 8 when you, to
2: 12 weeks, if I put them in the fridge, okay, I'm just going to just yeah, be argumentative math, here, right? though. So then they would, oh, it would still be too early. Yeah, plus. So plant them outside.
3: Plus the thing is is they, they need they need to be rooted into the soil in order to be able to sustain the Uh-oh. flower. So like I said, if you plant them late and they don't have a chance to root into the soil, then they abort the flower buds.
2: Well, that's not very fulfilling. Right. It's not. <laughs> That's so, all I can say so about it. Unfortunately,
3: there's there's not a whole lot of forgiveness. By, by getting either getting the bulbs too late or by forgetting about them and then coming back to them in December, uh, you're past the time at which you're going to have success with those in the landscape.
1: Okay. Well, and the ones in December, if you want to try to plant them, you can, but the ground's usually frozen and it's a lot more difficult.
3: Yeah, and they won't root out in the cold soil. So we need to plant them out in the fall, like I said, usually by the end of October when the soil temperatures are still warm enough that the roots will form. Otherwise, they have no basis to which to draw from to support the flower in the spring, and so they abort the flowers.
2: Okay, just a few seconds less left, but I want to at least get this person's question answered. How far up should they wrap their maple trees that they planted two years ago, three inches around the trunk? They say they're getting a lot of cold wind.
3: So wrapping trunks of trees is usually more of, of a sun injury issue. We, the wind, it's not going to help them with wind, and nor should we worry about that. Um, so generally speaking, if we wrap trees with a white reflective wrap, we wrap them from the base of the, the ground all the way up to where the first branches start. That's usually the typical practice.
2: Okay. Well, thanks to both of you uh, for spending Saturday with me here in the studio. It's nice to have company. You were kind of sick the last couple of weeks, so you yeah. kind of stayed away. So I'm glad you're back. And uh, now we're going to take a break for Christmas.
1: Yeah. So we'll be back in January.
2: All right. Have a very Merry Christmas.
5: I'm Dave Colley.